Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're happy to uh, welcome Colonel John Eidsmo to the show. Colonel, we've missed you the last couple of weeks, but uh, great to see you back. And I understand we have some, uh, some very timely things to discuss today. Well, I'd like to think they're going to be very timely. The certain issues that I know you and I are concerned about, and I believe our audience is concerned about, property rights, which we believe are God-given rights, and free exercise of religion rights. So we'll talk about both of those. First of all, we're looking at a case that the foundation is going to be filing an amicus or a friend of the court brief on, and we will probably file that this Friday. Case of Philip and Melissa Klein. Now, Philip and Melissa Klein own a bakery in the state of Washington, or state of Oregon, pardon me, and they call it Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And they'd had a very fine business going and good community relations and everything until a few years ago when a customer that had come to them, this is a customer that they'd always gotten along with and always served in the past, but this customer asked them to bake a wedding cake for them for a same-sex marriage. And Pines politely informed them that because of their religious convictions, they were unable to do that and that they considered same-sex marriage to be contrary to scripture. Well, shortly thereafter, the mother of the girl in this case came in and was obviously quite upset and said that they had no right to do this simply because the Bible doesn't say anything about homosexuality or same-sex marriage. And anyway, Mr. Pine simply quoted from Leviticus, the passage there, thou shalt not lie with mankind as with one kind, it is abomination. So she went on and told the Civil Rights Commission that Mr. Klein had called her daughter an abomination which is not what he had said at all. He was quoting the Bible, and the Bible didn't say she was an abomination. It said the act was an abomination. But anyway, the Civil Rights Commission in Oregon, therefore, filed a complaint against Mr. and Mrs. Klein and said that they had violated their civil rights statutes by discriminating against a gay couple. And that's where the case is. So it's gone through the Civil Rights Commission, to the Oregon Supreme Court. It's been up and down in the various courts for a number of years now. And now it is before the United States Supreme Court. It's there in the Supreme Court in what we call a writ of certiorari. Now, what a writ of certiorari is, this is a request to the Supreme Court that they issue an order directing the lower court to reconsider or change its decision. And the Supreme Court hears most of the cases they get, nearly all of them, in fact, by writ of certiorari. They get in excess of 10,000 of these every year, and they have time to hear only about 100. They don't want to make snap decisions. They want to consider the decisions very carefully, and they want the justices to be looking at this rather than having staff people do it. So they feel they can do justice to only about 100 cases a year, which means mathematically speaking, the odds that 
the Supreme Court will accept this case for review are about 1%. But there are some things you can do that can take make the court more likely to hear your case. One thing you can do is you can point out that this is a case that involves a lot more people than just the parties involved here. You know, how much publicity a case gets or how important it might seem to the parties is really not the issue here. You might remember years ago what was called the trial of the century, the O.J. Simpson case, the murder case of O.J. Simpson. And yes, it was important for the people involved, but it didn't really involve any landmark issues to be decided. It didn't really set any precedents that affected anybody but Simpson and the other people involved in that case. And so what you want to do is you want to demonstrate this is a case that involves many other people. And in all 50 states, in every one of the circuit courts all over the country, you have similar situations going on. You have people that are involved in photography who are being asked to photograph same-sex weddings and are refusing to do so based on religious convictions. You have people being asked to do printing for same-sex weddings. You have, well, we've mentioned photography already, but you have cakes or other things like this. And so this is going on not just here, but it's all over the country. And it involves not just the question of weddings, but same-sex issues in general. And so demonstrating that this case is a case of much greater importance than just the parties involved, that's one thing that is more likely to get your case heard. Another is that the local courts are unclear where to go on that. Sometimes you can show that the local courts are divided on this. Let's say the Texas Supreme Court has ruled one way on this. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has ruled another way, and others have ruled differently on this. And so courts and legislators and others all over the country are looking to the Supreme Court for guidance as to how this issue is going to be handled. If you can establish those things, then you're more likely to have your case be among the 1% that get heard. Now, it will be heard if four, four of the justices say they want to hear the case. Now, there doesn't have to be a majority voting to hear it, but four have to vote to hear it. And if they do hear it, then the case will be heard. And the way that'll go from there on is there'll be briefing before the Supreme Court. And then after the Supreme Court briefs the case and has read all the briefs that the parties have submitted, and many times in a case like this one that has many people that feel very passionately about this on both sides, you'll have dozens of amicus or friend of the court briefs written on both sides, and the justices, or at least their law clerks and staff attorneys, will read those carefully. And once they have considered all of these, then they will have oral argument. An oral argument normally lasts about an hour. After the oral argument, then... Usually the next day, 
the justices will confer and discuss the case and take a vote on it. And whichever side prevails, the senior judge on that side or senior justice on that side, the chief justice, if he votes with the prevailing side, then will assign the opinion to be written by somebody who voted on that side. That's one of the reasons the chief justice has a lot more power than the other justices. He has only one vote, just like everybody else. But if he's in the prevailing side, then he will decide who is going to write the opinion. So if he decides he wants a really strong opinion written in this case, he'll assign it to maybe Justice Thomas or Justice Alito. If he wants a more moderate opinion written, he might assign it to maybe Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh or maybe write it himself. And then others might write dissenting opinions as well. Now, once that opinion is written, then it will be circulated among the justices and the justices might discuss it among themselves or their staff attorneys will discuss it among themselves. When I was with the Alabama Supreme Court as a senior staff attorney there, I might see an opinion that another justice had written and discuss it with my justice. And I might say to the senior staff attorney of that other justice, my justice will join with your opinion if you will revise section three of it, or if you will eliminate this paragraph or add this paragraph or something. And then once that is finally completed and the dissenting opinions, the concurring opinions and all are written, then the decision is released. And until that decision is released, until a moment before the decision is released, any justice who wants to can change his vote. But once it's released, then that's final. Well, anyway, so this case is in the stage of certiorari right now. And we tend to think as the foundation that it's more important to file briefs at the certiorari stage than even at the merit stage, although we'll file it both. But after all, if certain is denied, the case doesn't even get heard. And so if we can help convince the judges they ought to hear this case, then we feel that we've accomplished a great deal. And if they decide to hear the case, usually they reverse the decision in whole or in part about 60% of the time. And so get over that third hurdle and your chances are fairly good. <clears throat> anyway, as I say, we write these amicus or friend of the court briefs to try to persuade the court of this case to hear the case. Or if they do decide to hear it, then it's at the merit stage. And there we'll be writing a brief to try to persuade the court that they should rule in favor of Klein's Bakery or Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And anyway, so that's where amicus or friend of the court briefs from other organizations can be very helpful. Because what we can do is we can focus on certain issues that the main party may not have space. You know, they have only a certain amount of space in their brief. They may not have space to focus on it. Or maybe there's an important issue that they would like to see raised, but they're afraid that they might offend some of the justice by raising it. Well, if you're an abbotist, you don't really care if you offend them. So 
the, we can sometimes raise points that the petitioner would like us to raise, but that they're uncomfortable raising themselves. So we are in the process of finalizing a brief to submit to the court, probably be filed either today, tomorrow, or, or Friday. Basically what we're arguing in this case is that the clients are objecting here on the basis of two things. One is free exercise of religion, and the other is freedom of speech. Now let me mention the freedom of speech issue first because you might not think of that. But designing a wedding cake is an art. And you're putting wording on it. You're putting symbols on it. You are making a statement. We sometimes say a picture is worth a thousand words. And art is symbolic speech. And so we are expressing a message when we design a cake, especially a cake for a same-sex wedding. And if the clients are forced to design a cake for a same-sex marriage that they disapprove of, that is what we call compelled speech, forcing people to say something that they do not want to say. That is as much a violation of free speech as prohibiting the person from saying what they do want to say. We had a case some years ago Holy versus Maynard it involved a Jehovah's Witness in the state of New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire has a license plate, and on the license plate, it says, live free or die. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses, at least these Jehovah's Witnesses, objected to having to have that on their car because that implies taking action in war to fight to the death. Whereas, as Jehovah's Witnesses, they are pacifists and don't believe in war. So they wanted to just simply take some tape and mask out that message on their license plate. And the state said, you can't do that. The Supreme Court agreed that they could. The Supreme Court said that they had convictions on this matter. The court said that by forcing them to display this message on their vehicle, that they were forcing them to say something that they did not want to say. As I said, it is just as much a free speech violation to force somebody to say something they don't want to say than to prevent somebody from saying something they do want to say. Just think about it a minute. Let's say that you were being required by the police to go before a microphone and say, I love Hillary Clinton. I think she should be president. You would consider that a greater violation of your speech, free speech rights than not allowing you to say anything at all. Well, the clients feel that same way about having to design a cake for same-sex same sex wedding. So compelled speech is one issue that we're raising. The other issue we're raising here is free exercise of religion, that their objection is not simply based on speech that they don't want to say. Their objection, rather, is based upon the guarantee of free exercise because sending this message would violate not just their free speech rights, but their free exercise of religion rights because their beliefs on this issue of same-sex marriage are based on the Bible, and they are biblical Christians. We are arguing in our brief that free exercise of religion 
is not only protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution, but it is the first and foremost of, of all rights guaranteed, the right of religious liberty. After all, religious liberty is a right that is given by God himself. Recognizing that all of our rights come from God, the right to acknowledge him and to acknowledge him in the way that we believe he should be acknowledged is not just one of the rights that we are given. It is the first and foremost most of, of all rights that we are given. And that's why this right is the very first that is mentioned in our Bill of Rights. And why is the state saying that, no, we don't have to honor these rights and free exercise of religion and free speech? Because they are saying that there is another right here, and that is the right to engage in same-sex marriage and not to be discriminated against because of your same-sex marriage. Well, we are saying, first of all, that that is not a right that is guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States or by God, either one. Same-sex marriage is not a marriage at all. In fact, we've made the argument in other briefs, we're not raising it right here at this time, but we made the argument in other briefs that a same-sex marriage is not even a marriage. You know, we look to the case, one of the cases the court has cited in favor of same-sex marriage is the case of Loving versus Virginia. This is a case in which the Supreme Court said that a Virginia law that prohibited interracial marriage is unconstitutional. And we wouldn't dispute that at all. But they're saying that because the Constitution guarantees the right to marry someone of another race, it also guarantees the right to marry someone of whatever gender you prefer. Our argument on that is that goes to the very definition of marriage itself as is defined by God. When Virginia prohibited interracial marriage, they did so in the erroneous belief that interracial marriage was in some way immoral. But they didn't dispute that an interracial marriage was a marriage. We would argue that a same-sex marriage is not a marriage at all, any more than marrying your cow or marrying your dog or something like that is a marriage. Sometimes I've cited in briefs and lectures on this subject a statement by Abraham Lincoln. And when Lincoln was a trial lawyer, he was arguing a case and he singled out one of the jurors and said to the juror, how many legs does a cow have? Now, some of the accounts of this say dog, dog or cow, either one. And the juror answered, well, four. Lincoln answered, okay, now if we call the tail a leg, then how many legs does a cow have? Well, then she has five. Lincoln said, no, she still has four. Just calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And just calling same-sex marriage a marriage doesn't make it a marriage. Anyway, point we are making here, regardless of all of that, is that 
even if you're going to say that the right to have a same-sex marriage is a right, you have to acknowledge it's a right not guaranteed in the Constitution. And Justice Kennedy, in the Obergefell decision, as he tries to say that there is a right to same-sex marriage, he looks to the guarantee of liberty in the 14th Amendment, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And he says that the framers of the 14th Amendment did not define the term liberty. They left that for future generations, meaning us. Scalia, in his dissenting opinion, says that when Justice Kennedy says future generations, what he means is future, future generations of unelected lawyers who serve on the Supreme Court, and that this is not a right guaranteed by the Constitution. So we are saying that if we are pitting on the one hand the right to same-sex marriage and the right not to be discriminated against because you are engaging in a same-sex marriage, a right that if it exists at all, is not found expressly in the Constitution. If we're pitting that right against the first and foremost right guaranteed in the Constitution, free exercise of religion, plus the right of freedom of speech, well, you balance those out and the balance has to tip on the side of free exercise and free speech. Anyway, so, We're looking at this case then and seeing the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the Supreme Court struck that act at, down as unconstitutional unless it involves a hybrid right, that is two rights being looked at together, which we have here, free exercise of religion and free speech, and put them together, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act says that they're to be evaluated as strict scrutiny rights, that is, they can be violated only if there is a compelling interest that cannot be achieved by less restrictive means. Putting all that together, we'd like to think that we have aided the court in, by presenting a, some compelling reasons why they should take this case and why they should rule it in favor of the Kleins and the Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And we may have an answer within a few weeks as to whether or not they're going to hear this case. And if they do decide to hear it, we'll probably not have an answer as to how they're going to decide it until probably next summer. Anyway, so we've got some interesting cases going on here, and we'll see how that one goes. We'd like to think we've struck a blow for free exercise of religion and freedom of speech. Whether the Supreme Court decides to hear this case or not, sometimes you may influence the court and the staff, even if they don't rule in your favor this time. Maybe they will next time. Let's talk about another case after the break. <laughs>
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Again, we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I appreciated your explanation in that first segment about uh, one of the cases that you're working on. You mentioned there's there's another one that we ought to be paying close attention to. Tell us about it. Okay, before I do, let me explain something as to why this case may be before the court right now, and it's a doctrine that has recently been developed called progressive originalism. Let me explain what I mean by this. It's a difficult term, but we have been arguing for many decades now that the Supreme Court has departed from the intent of the framers. That is, that they've gone into what we call the living constitution or the evolving constitution, that constitution gets a new meaning with each generation. Part of what, as we saw before, Justice Kennedy was saying in the same-sex marriage decision, Obergefell, but there have been those who have been saying we need the living constitution approach, let each generation reinterpret the constitution. Others, generally more conservative people, who have been saying, no, we need to go with jurisprudence of original intent. We need to interpret the constitution as the framers intended. And if we don't like the way the framers intended it, then we should amend it. But we don't just simply stretch it by giving it new meanings that the framers never intended. Washington would certainly agree with that in his farewell address. He said, if the, in any respect, the Constitution needs to be changed, let it be changed by an amendment in the way the Constitution designates. But let there be no change by usurpation, for this is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Anyway, the progressive originalists are now arguing, I should say before I get to that, that when Justice Kagan, a liberal justice, was confirmed on the Supreme Court a couple of decades ago, she made the statement that we are all originalists now, partly because of the strong persuasion of Justice Scalia and others on the court that the living constitution approach, she was saying, we really can't follow that anymore. We really have to be originalists. And for a liberal like Justice Kagan to say that is pretty remarkable. But while Kagan is a liberal, she's not a radical like Justice Sotomayor or a radical like Justice Brown, the newest justice on the court appears to be. But just a day or so ago, in arguments before the Supreme Court, they were arguing an Alabama case involving reapportionment issues. And the question there was whether or not the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment forbids all consideration of race in reapportionment issues. And Judge Brown, a black justice, say, no, no, they should be able to consider race. And the 14th Amendment was never intended, the Equal Protection Clause never was intended to mean that you can't consider race. Rather, it means that you have to consider race in ways of bringing certain races up into a status of equality with others. So it doesn't mean you can't consider race. And this has been reflective of a school that they're calling progressive originalism. And 
Anyway, as the Wall Street Journal describes progressive originalism, using a article here that appeared on the March, March 14th edition, so-called progressive originalism departs from the conservative strain by shifting focus from the 18th century constitutional text to the three reconstruction amendments ratified after the Civil War. Now, when you talk about the three reconstruction amendments, they mean the 13th amendment, which prohibits slavery or involuntary servitude, the 14th amendment, which prohibits denial of equal protection or denial of privileges and immunities or denial of due process of law, or the 15th amendment, which says that people cannot be deprived of their right to vote based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So anyway, the three reconstruction amendments ratified after the Civil War, viewed through the reconstruction prism, the Constitution turns out to be way more liberal than conservatism, says Yale law professor Akhil Reed Amar, a leading proponent of progressive originalism. By applying methods blessed by conservatives to the neglected texts and forgotten framers of the Reconstruction Amendments, liberals hope to display powerful new arguments to cement precedents under threat from the right and undergird the recognition of new rights. Anyway, Keith Alexander, writing in the Texas Review of Law and Politics, says historical evidence suggests that the government's duty to provide such protection was precisely what the framers of the Equal Protection Clause had in mind. In the aftermath of the Civil War, many newly freed slaves and Union sympathizers suffered from private acts of violence in the South, acts of violence that the former Confederate states would often fail to redress. Reports of the unpunished violence in the South outraged Northerners, many of whom demanded a congressional response. Congress responded by creating the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which reported that in the South, there were acts of cruelty, oppression, and murder, which local authorities are at no pains to prevent or punish. The local authorities' failure to protect Black and white Union sympathizers was not necessarily the result of discriminatory laws, but the failure of state officials to enforce facially neutral laws, such as homicide laws when the victims were Blacks or Union sympathizers. Anyway, so progressive originalism is saying that we need to give a original intent interpretation to the Constitution, but we understand that the Constitution can be interpreted by amendments, and that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments radically change the Constitution. Well, I think this issue is going to come up a great deal in the next few years, maybe the next many years, we're going to hear this term progressive originalism much, much more now. And basically, it's a way of getting around originalism by saying, yes, original intent for the Constitution is all changed by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And we need to look to the intent of those who drafted and adopted those amendments. Where I think they're going to fail in this, and I hope they fail in this, actually, because I think they're misreading things entirely, 
is they are reading into the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments a much more radical intention than was ever there at the time those amendments were passed in the late 1860s. Any suggestion that the framers of the 14th Amendment, when they spoke about equal protection of the law, or when they spoke about life, liberty, and property, intended to protect same-sex marriage, or intended to protect transgenderism or things like this, is utter nonsense. If there had been any suggestion that those amendments would ever be interpreted in that way, you can be very sure they never would have passed the Congress. And if they had been any suggestion, they would have been interpreted in the radical ways they've been interpreted already. You can be sure that it never, they never would have been ratified by three-fourths of the states. And the states that ratify these amendments in their state legislatures and the Congress that votes to approve these amendments, all of those things have to be considered in determining what is the original intent here. So even though this is a ingenious way of trying to get around original intent by calling it progressive originalism, I think ultimately it's going to have to fail because they are reading into the framers of the 14th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments an intention that was never really there. Well, let's move on from there now, and let's take a look at a case that the Foundation will be filing a brief on in the next couple of weeks. This is the case of Havelock versus Holcomb. It's an Indiana case, and it involves property rights. And we will recall that the Fifth Amendment, which is adopted in 1789 and ratified by 1791, the 15th Amendment says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Eminent domain, things like this. You're going to take private property. You have to provide compensation for the person you take it from. Now, some states have gone even further than the Fifth Amendment in protecting private property rights. Here in Alabama, for example, our Constitution says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, nor shall private property be taken for any other purpose without the owner's consent. So that's even stronger. But here's where the real problem has come in in regard to this particular clause of the Fifth Amendment. We call it the takings clause. The problem has come in, what if the federal government or the state governments as well, what if they don't confiscate property? What if they just regulate it in such a way that you deprive it of substantial value? Let's say that you have property that you're planning to build a house on, and this property is rezoned commercial so that you can only build commercial property on it, or you can only use it for other purposes. You can't use it for the purpose you intended. Well, you still own the property, but its value to you is far less. We call that a regulatory take versus a confiscatory take. Now, a regulatory taking is 
still subject to the Fifth Amendment if it deprives the owner of substantially all economically viable use of his property. We have a case out of the Carolinas, it's the Lucas case, if I recall correctly, where a man, and I believe there are others involved here too, had purchased beachfront property. And anyway, after he purchased this property, the local government instituted a new ordinance, a zoning ordinance that said that you can't build on property within a certain amount of feet of the ocean, meaning that he couldn't build on his lot, anywhere on his lot. I bought that lot, he said, for the purpose of building a, a home on it. Now that I bought the lot, you're telling me that I can't build on it anymore. That is a taking. It's a regulatory taking. And anyway, the state argued, oh, no, we didn't take your property. You still own it. You still have the deed to it. You still get the privilege of paying taxes on it. You just can't build on it. Anyway, the Supreme Court looked at that case, and they said that the state had deprived Mr. Lucas of substantially all economically viable use of his property, and that, therefore, it constituted a regulatory taking, and Mr. Lucas was entitled to compensation. Well, the case we're looking at right now comes out of Indiana, Havelock versus Holcomb. It again involves lakefront property, and this is lakefront property that Havelock and several others in, that are joining him in the lawsuit, property that they have owned for a long time and that they have built up. The question is, how far does their property extend? And their deed says that it goes all the way to the, the water, to the water, and to what we usually mean is the low water mark. Now, obviously, the lake there doesn't have tides quite in the same sense the ocean does, but there are high water marks and low water marks. And anyway, the county has now adopted an ordinance in which they have said that all property that is lower than the high water mark, 591 feet above sea level, all water below that mark is the property of the state. That doesn't affect his house. He still has his house. But it means that people can walk right in front of his house and so on, on beach property that he had always understood was him. Now, what we are arguing in this case, and what Havelock is arguing as well, is that this isn't a regulatory taking. This is a confiscatory taking. They have taken property that previously belonged to him, and now, they're saying it belongs to the state. And we believe that is a taking in violation of the Fifth Amendment. And if they can do this at all, that Mr. Holcomb and the others joining him in the suit are entitled to compensation. 
Now, so far, the lower courts have looked at this case, and they have ruled against Mr. Holder. And first of all, they say there is some ambiguity as to whether or not the property below the high water mark ever really did belong to him. We think the deed makes it very clear that it did. And secondly, they are saying that even if it did, he has no basis for a lawsuit because the people that he is suing, the governor and the attorney general, are not the people that took his property and don't have the power to give it back. Well, who did take his property? Well, ultimately, it was the court, the lower court. And the lower court took its action, though, in a lawsuit that was prosecuted by the attorney general. So we say that the attorney general was involved in causing the injury, taking the property, and, that, and for this reason, his lawsuit is proper. Anyway, as far as whether or not the court has jurisdiction to hear this case, the petitioners, we think, have done a very fine job in arguing that they do. We're making a few additional arguments here. First of all, we are arguing that property rights are traditionally regarded as very, very sacred rights in American law. More recently, we have tended to downgrade property rights and say that these are some of the least important rights, unlike the political rights like free speech and so on. We don't think the founders viewed it that way as, at all. First of all, we look to the influence of the Bible upon the founding fathers, and we'll be citing this. We'll be pointing out, for example, that in 1980. Three, Congress passed a resolution urging the president to declare that year the year of the Bible, which he did. And anyway, that in that resolution asking to declare that year the year of the Bible, they stated biblical concepts influenced principles of American law as found in the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution. So Congress and the president have both recognized that the Bible influenced our concepts of law. And so we look to what the Bible has to say in regard to property rights. We see that very clear throughout the scripture, the commandment, thou shalt not kill, which you could possibly say just means you can't, I'm, I'm sorry, thou shalt not steal which you could possibly say means you don't steal from the government, but when you tie that in with the last commandment, the coveting commandment, thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's, very clearly we're talking about private property rights here. And then as far as what the government can do in taking property, I looked at the example of King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was a Jewish king, but he had a Phoenician wife, Jezebel. Nobody names their child Jezebel because Jezebel is the most wicked woman in the Bible. But anyway, Jezebel is his wife and she has no respect for Jewish law at all. Well, I've got to ask you about how much time do I have? You've still got about uh, five minutes. Okay, we good. We can cover it then. Okay, but Naboth, a commoner, has a vineyard, and King Ahab wants that vineyard, and he asks Naboth, let me buy that vineyard from me. I'll pay you more than it's worth. Vineyard Naboth says, no, 
I inherited this from my ancestors. I'm going to pass it on to my descendants. It is not for sale at any price. Now, Naboth is sullen about this, but he at least recognizes that under Jewish law, if Naboth wants to keep his vineyard, he can keep it, and even he, the king, can't take it from him. Jezebel steps in and basically says, no Phoenician king would ever let a little peasant deprive him of land he wanted. I'll get that property for you. And so she has Naboth brought in on false charges and executed and property forfeited. But God condemns this, and both Ahab and Jezebel die as a result of this sin and other sins. Point of the matter, the Bible not only protects property rights, it protects property rights against an unlawful exercise of eminent domain like this. Likewise, John Locke, who based his views greatly on the Bible, talked about our God-given rights and summarized those God-given rights as life, liberty, and property. And Jefferson, a strong fan of John Locke in the Declaration of Independence, says that our God-given rights include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Within pursuit of happiness, he includes property, but other things as well. And in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, we go back to this language of life, liberty, or property. So very clearly, property rights are considered to be very, very fundamental rights under biblical law, under American constitutional law, and under laws that should be applied today. And we will, in our brief, make a strong distinction between the difference between a regulatory taking and a confiscatory taking, and emphasizing this is a confiscatory taking. Part of what the lower court has argued in this case is that, well, the Fifth Amendment has been applied to prohibit takings by legislative and executive bodies. It hasn't been used very clearly. In some cases it has, but it's not that clear that it applies to takings by a court. Well, we are going to argue that that is an invalid concept entirely. The petitioners have explained very clearly why judicial takings are covered by the Fifth Amendment as well as others, but we're going to note further that the Supreme Court was regarded by the Founding Fathers as less powerful than the other branches of government. Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers says that the judiciary is the least dangerous branch of government. The legislative branch exercises will, the executive exercises force, the judiciary only exercises judgment. So they are the least powerful of the three branches of government. And yet, if we say that they are exempt from the takings clause. We are saying the judiciary can take property in ways that the legislative branch and the executive branch cannot. That is making the judicial branch the most dangerous, not the least dangerous branch, which is certainly contrary to what the founding fathers intended. We will be filing this brief sometime before the 26th of October, and we're working on it right now, but Property rights are biblical rights, and they are constitutional rights, and they are very important in our constitutional system. So pray for us as we continue to pursue this case. Marvelous. We are down to about one minute left, Colonel. What are we going to be looking to discuss in our next program? Any thoughts on on what uh, you'd like to touch on? 
maybe the next time we'll take a look at what cases the Supreme Court has already decided to hear for this coming year and what cases may be coming up yet. But then we've been wanting to look more at a biblical system of law and government, particularly its criminal justice system. And if time permits, we'll go back to studying that subject.